Ever since Rob Portman announced he's not running for re-election, he has been making a lot of news. I'm not sure what's gotten into this guy, but we'll be talking about him today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with the full slate of regulars today. Layla Tassi, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston. Happy Tuesday, all. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. Good morning. We've got some good stuff to talk about, so let's start talking. What does Ohio Senator Rob Portman have to say in his role as a key member of an investigating committee about the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol sparked by Donald Trump? Jane Cahoon, I, I, I'm, I, I see a little bit of steel, or I said this morning, stiff nylon in <laughs> Portman's spine on this. He's, he's the rare Republican that continues to see peril in what happened and call it out. Well, that's true, but you're not going to find condemnation of Donald Trump in this report. So just keep that in mind. But this was a bipartisan report from the Senate Rules and Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committees that was released just early this morning. And Portman is the top Republican on the Homeland Security Committee. So that's why he played a key role here. And it basically found that Capitol Police and other security forces were, were just not They're just woefully unprepared for this large-scale violent attack at the Capitol. And uh, this report was, you know, 127 pages. It called the riot an attack on democracy and the most significant breach of the Capitol in over 200 years. So let me stop you. Let me stop you there, because that's actually very significant, because there are people in Portman's party that are trying to say it wasn't that it was just a protest that got a little bit out of hand, even though we all saw it, it was televised and we know exactly what it was. So I think it's significant that Portman has a role in a committee that is saying in no uncertain terms, this was the worst assault in the Capitol in 200 years. Granted, granted, I'll give you that. Uh, So anyway, the report concluded that the intelligence community, community failed to assess this threat and to communicate with law enforcement about the potential violence, which, as we know, turned into actual violence from this mob that was bent on keeping this joint session of Congress from tallying the electoral votes from the 2020 presidential election. And it, you know, it said that the U.S. Capitol Police didn't have the right equipment and training to contain this this uh, riot and so as a result they recommended in a bunch of, they recommended a bunch of changes in how they process intelligence how pe- police should handle riots and how the national guard should be called to the capitol to address future disturbances um, the big thing this report did not do however and it wasn't designed to do was investigate what really led to the attack why it occurred who was involved hence the you know nothing really about Trump's incitement or anything like that. Uh, That would have been more the mission of an independent bipartisan commission that the Senate failed to get enough votes to approve recently with with Portman breaking from his party to to vote for advancing that issue to debate. But they didn't get enough votes to do that. So but Portman said that wasn't his committee's mandate. He said our job was to look for security issues, look at the intelligence and make specific rec- recommendations so it won't happen again. And that's what we did. He said there were differences among the members, you know, the Democrats and Republicans, but they worked them out. And this report might not be exactly, you know, the report he would want, but he said it was a good report and he hopes the Senate and House will 
we'll implement the recommendations in an upcoming uh, uh, supplemental spending bill to in- improve the security there at the Capitol. More so than other Republicans, he has been on the side of outrage about this. He did call out Trump in the beginning. He didn't vote to impeach him because he gave a bunch of reasons why not. But he he did call him out for what he did. Uh, he did vote, as you said, to advance that to a debate where as many of his Republican colleagues weaseled out of it. Um, and he did put his name on a report. I, I mean, I, I guarantee you there was pressure within his party to pull away from this, to, to pretend that this didn't happen, which is what the what they're trying to do is to say, yeah, forget what you saw, America. This was nothing. And he's not doing that. So it's it's you know, you wish he would have voted to impeach. What Donald Trump did was the most dastardly act of a president of our lifetimes. I mean, he tried to overthrow the government of the United States for his own selfish purposes. Uh, but at least Portman is standing by and seeing what happened as an outrage. So kind of not maybe not quite steel, but like I said, just some <laughs> stiff nylon. <laughs> Good analogy. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. When was the last time Ohio had as few COVID hospital patients as we've had over the past few days? Lord Johnson, it's amazing how fast numbers are plummeting in Ohio. Yeah, this is good news. The last time it was this low was last June. So the Ohio Hospital Association releases a daily survey and it reported fewer than 600 patients in each of the last three days. There was 539 on Sunday. And to be very specific, that was the lowest number since June 21st of last year. Compare that to December. Remember right before Christmas when the numbers were skyrocketing? There was 5,308 hospitalized COVID patients then. And that was when people were saying, We really fear that our hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. So obviously the vaccinations are helping. We've got about 40%, maybe a little bit higher in Ohio vaccinated fully now. But also this warm, humid weather, just like last summer, really tamps it down because COVID prefers to spread in dry, cold air. Um, Also, the number of critically ill ICU patients in Ohio hospitals also improving. That dipped to 161 on Sunday compared to a high of more than 1,300 last December. There is a danger out there. The uh, the variant that's now called Delta, because we're going to name them after Greek letters, it was the <laughs> one that arose in India, is 40% more uh, contagious than the variant that arose in Great Britain and now is overrunning Great Britain. It's not affecting people who are vaccinated still, even this variant, but it's hitting much harder on the people who haven't been. We still have a lot of people who have not been vaccinated in Ohio. Um, A lot of people in the chat rooms who see all sorts of conspiracies about the vaccine. So as that variant, the Delta variant arrives here, which it will, we could see an uptick again. That's what they're seeing in Great Britain now. Hospital numbers are going back up. Um, And that's, that could be something we see at the end of summer, just as all of the children are going back to school, all of the unvaccinated, unvaccinated children. children. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the, the the effort to get more people vaccinated is probably more needed now than at any time because that a forty percent higher contagion rate is pretty frightening. I'm just glad I'm, not, I'm one of the vaccinated <laughs> people because that's really keeping everybody. Can safe. I jump in here? This is Layla well, Zassi. Sure, Layla. <laughs> um, <laughs> I um. Is anyone, did you guys notice that I feel like in the last several days we have turned the corner and now no one is wearing masks? 
Do you, do right. you guys notice that? I did yeah. notice that it, it I, I yeah. said on the podcast yesterday, I felt like it was a transition period when they, you know, three weeks ago when they lifted the mask, I was wearing it. And now I'm just, I think it takes time for people to get comfortable. It took, yeah, no time at all. I walked into Target and I was literally one, the only person wearing a mask. And it, for a second, I was like, they're going to think I'm here to rob the place because it's now <laughs> not common to have a mask on. Well, and, weren't the workers, though, wearing them? Oh, no, none. Oh, that's odd. At the Target over in University Heights, they're, all the workers are wearing them. And it struck me that, you know, technically the CDC says you're supposed to still wear a mask if you're not vaccinated and only, you know, half of us are vaccinated. So half of us should have masks on. And that I mean, no one, no one was wearing a mask. Yeah, there's a danger. These numbers will go back up. It's amazing that they're back to where they were a year ago, just under a year ago. But there is a danger. The unvaccinated people are are the danger they could mm-hmm. start another spike and as we get back to cold weather that's very likely to happen um, and then we'll have flu because nobody's wearing masks you're listening to this week in the cle how violent was cleveland over the steamy weekend and where do we stand in terms of violence compared to last year when we set a modern record for homicides Leila latasi these numbers are really frightening they are. It was this was one of the those exceptionally violent weekends in Cleveland with 35 people suffering gunshot wounds in 22 shootings between Friday and Monday. Two of those were mass shootings and three people died on account of the violence in that short period of time. One of the the mass shooting events was a graduation party Sunday night. Someone got into an argument with a neighbor and and opened fire. They hit eight people. And then seven hours later, on the other side of town, another gunman opened fire on the front porch of a home and six people were injured. And this really marks this continuation of violence that spiked last year when 190 people were killed in Cleveland. I mean, that's just astronomical number. As you said, Chris, it it was a record. That was the city's highest homicide rate since 1982. And we are definitely in for another record-setting year this year. So far, there have been 68 homicides in the city in 2021. Last year at this time, there were 63. And non-fatal shootings have increased by 56% this year. And That's ex- the scary part. I know, I, mean, that, I know. And so, the... so what's to account for this? Experts told Adam Faris they, they believe that the trend is attributable to uh, a combination of factors. Increased gun sales are one of them with very little regulation. Uh, there are simply more guns on the streets and, and guns, gun seizure is up uh, something like 70 percent in Cleveland. But beyond that, people are are on the edge this year. You know, the past year has heightened tension everywhere with high profile police shootings and certainly the pandemic, which has led to this still struggling economy. And now that the covid restrictions have been lifted, more people can gather, which can be a recipe for disaster if tensions are already high and people have guns. And then there are retaliatory shootings, which harkens to that theory that violence is a public health crisis and, and a condition that spreads like a disease and should be treated as such. I, I'm a firm believer in that sort of approach to, to violence uh, uh, mitigation. Uh, but, uh, you know, violence begets violence. So so it's it has to be interrupted through street level outreach and redirection and things like that. And I, I think this is going to be one of the, the biggest issues that we'll see emerge as one of, in the in the mayor's race this year. For sure. Yeah. And well, and what do you do? I mean, you can't take the guns off the street. So even if you were to, to choke the supply right now, it would take years for the for the guns to filter out of the hands of the criminals. It just keeps police hopping. I mean, that many shootings. I mean, what else can they do except run from one shooting to another? 
That's true. Yeah, your point about the guns on the street. I remember years ago when we had contemplated doing a big project about about gun violence. One of the facts that the police pointed out to us was that sometimes when they when they finally do seize a, a gun that's been used in a crime and, and they can link it to a dozen other crimes that were committed, you know, that they they find the gun that that's been used all over the city in, in various homicides and shootings. And um, it's interesting how these things, re- how the guns remain in circulation over years. And it would take, like you said, forever to, to get them all off the street. Well, and the city has tried to pass gun laws, but the legislature in Columbus has blocked everything they've done. They've gone through the Supreme Court multiple times and lost at every juncture. So they're left to deal with the carnage, but cannot solve the the problem or the cause. So frightening weekend. I, I'm sure the heat had something to do with it. We always see more violence in, in weekends when the heat is high, and we certainly had a hot one. Let's hope we're not in for a long, hot summer. Mm. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Must be Rob Portman Day. What is the senator's message for President Joe Biden after visiting three European countries that are under heavy pressure from Russia? Jane Cahoon, he's in the news. He certainly is. Yeah, he's he's pretty fresh back from a trip last week to Eastern Europe. Basically, he wants uh, President Biden to talk tough when he meets next week with Vladimir Putin and send a really strong message that the United States stands firmly beside countries that have been the target of Russian aggression, whether it's military, you know, disinformation or cyber attacks. Portman, who's a Republican, as we know, he he went with two Democratic senators from the Foreign Relations Committee, Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire and Chris Murphy of Connecticut. And they went to Ukraine, Lithuania and Georgia. And they also met with an opposition leader from Belarus to talk about human rights abuses by the regime of Alexander Lukashenko. He's the dictator whose government recently forced the landing of that commercial passenger jet and arrested a a dissident journalist. But uh, Portman said he and his colleagues were the first Congress members to visit Georgia in several years as foreign visits, you know, were impeded by the pandemic. But he said this whole effort was to ensure these countries know that they have a friend and that the United States is going to continue to stand with them to, you know, say they can get out from under Russia's influence. He, he said they all face immense pressure from Russia as they've become stronger allies of, of the U.S. over the past few decades. And, you know, he also noted they have strong ties to Northeast Ohio, where we have a lot of immigrants from well, those let, countries. Let me ask you this, though. I, you know, Donald Trump was pretty much completely subservient to Vladimir Putin. I mean, it was when he when he went and I mean, it, it blew everybody away just how much he kind of sucked up to the guy. Did Rob Portman ever call on Donald Trump to stand firm against Vladimir Putin? Or did he silently stand there while while Trump kind of disgraced the United States and the relationship with Russia? And now he's coming out to push hard on Joe Biden. Mm, I have to say, I'm going to have to do a clip search on that. I don't recall Portman coming out that strongly, you know, telling Trump that. Uh, but I'm not sure. Do you remember how he might have reacted? Remember when uh, Trump and Putin were standing up there and, and Trump was believing Putin over his own intelligence? Yeah, I mean, it was bad. The, um, yeah. So I, I can't remember what Portman may or may not have said at the time. I, well, I'm going to have to 
look that up. But I don't, I don't recall him, you know, it's just like he's, he's, he's on Biden's case for a lot of things. Right. You know? But, but <laughs> let, let's be real. I mean, it was a national embarrassment the way Trump played to Putin. It was, it was humiliating. I mean, you heard veterans just shocked that, that he would do that. And I don't remember people like Portman standing up then when they should have, because Biden hasn't shown any weakness with Putin, at least not yet. But the previous president did repeatedly. Portman isn't. Portman would say that the Biden administration has shown. I don't know if it's weakness or but he faulted the decision to waive these congressional sanctions against the builders of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. He said that that's against U.S. national interests and it helps Russia while it hurts Ukraine and other allies, uh, U.S. allies in Europe. You know, he said that could deprive Ukraine of a bunch of revenue. And um, so he he thinks, you know, that that's that's a fault. And uh, I think he mentioned some other Trump policies that he hopes Biden will continue. But um, as you said, yeah, he's he's definitely more on on the critical uh, being critical of Biden here. Okay, we'll have to see how the Biden meeting goes. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How did things go for restaurants in the first weekend with no health restrictions? Did the diners come back? Laura Johnson, it seems like there was some jubilation in the restaurants over the weekend. Yeah, I think the the restaurant owners were happy. The people who went to the restaurants looked pretty happy. I I loved the way some of these owners described it. The quotes were really fantastic that Ann Nikoloff and Mark Bona got talking to restaurant owners. And and Dave Peckowitz has some really fun photos out on West 25th Street and in the flats, just like, you know, a warm summer weekend. Um, So the owners described it as the opposite of social distancing and the new roaring 20s, which which I really kind of smiled at. And this idea is that the the people who are vaccinated, they want they they have been vaccinated. They wanted to be and they want to get back out and they're ready to embrace the world. And they, they talked about the sheer joy of being able to hug and high five and spontaneously interact with people. Because remember, you could go to restaurants, you could go inside, but you had to sit at your table. You had to have your mask on until very recently until you sat down. And that was it. You stayed with your party. Now you could like stop and chat at every table along the way if you wanted to. You could belly up to the bar. You can, you know, high five the server, whatever you want to do, you can do it. And I think people are just very excited to be out. And it was pretty packed on a a Friday night. It's interesting how fast hugs have returned. I thought that would be something (laughs) that would take a long time. Handshakes, not so much. You're seeing a lot of fist bumps, but everybody's hugging again. The uh, let me ask you, the three of you, have any of you been inside for indoor dining yet? I, I, on our way back from camping, we took the kids into McDonald's. So that was my big fine dining experience. And you sat at a table inside? We sat at a table. We wore our masks until we were sitting down because kids are unvaccinated. And the workers were wearing masks. Um, I was really excited to see the return of the drink machine and the unlimited (laughs) refills. I mean, a fountain Uh, beverage is a a small joy in my life. How little it takes to make a mom happy. (laughs) I went somewhere um, and sat outdoors with a couple of friends and walked through the indoor restaurant where a lot of masks off and so forth. And Layla, you're a germaphobe, so you haven't been inside, I've right? become a germaphobe, yeah. And since since the restrictions have eased, I have not uh, been anywhere to, to eat. Um, and I think I would probably call ahead to find out what they're still doing, uh, if there is any space between tables, if people are still wearing masks, if the servers are wearing masks. I, 
I have become a germaphobe. You're absolutely right. And well, I you've got continue. three children who can't <laughs> be vaccinated. Right. So I, one of whom really is, a, is, is, is a one-year-old and I don't, yeah. you know, who has been exposed to nothing for the past year. So right. am I going to take right. that risk? No way. What about you, Chris? No, I have not been inside a restaurant since it started. Not for any reason other than, you know, I was sick as a dog for <laughs> three weeks. Um, I don't think I would hesitate to go inside. But, uh, you know, until I was completely over that cold, I didn't want to infect people. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Should we feel sad that an 1850s mansion in Cleveland will be demolished to make way for apartments in the city's midtown section? Leila Tassi, the, the city has a long history of famous mansions that have been torn down. Uh, and now we're going to tear down another one. It's uh, sad. What's the story? I know. So the city's planning commission has given their blessing to a developer to build 160 market rate apartments in the city's midtown neighborhood. And that sadly means tearing down this this historic mansion. It's, it's this Alan Sullivan house, which was built around 1850 and was owned at different times by railroad engineer Richard Allen and banker Jeremiah Sullivan. The home has been vacant for nearly two decades after last operating as the Coliseum Entertainment Center. I'm not totally sure what that is, but today the mansion has really fallen into disrepair and the property around it is just covered with weeds and high grass. The Planning Commission previously approved demolition of other buildings on the property and then on Friday unanimously approved the demolition of this of this house, but said the owners must document and use as many portions of it as possible in the new project. I'm Really curious to see how they would pull that off, given that what's planned for the site is three buildings, which will also include space for resident amenities and storefronts. So incidentally, the, the Euclid Corridor Design Review Committee, which advises the commission, was was split 4-4 on whether to recommend the demolition. There was some some interest earlier from developers and preservationists who wanted to move the mansion, but the cost of that is estimated at about $500,000 and, and the cost of renovating it and doing all the structural repairs was estimated at like $2.7 million. So clearly the consensus is that there's just no way to save this thing all around. It's, it's, it's you know, there's been development, $300 million worth in the past dozen years or so in Midtown. So unfortunately, there comes a time when it's just, you know, you got to move on. It is good that they're going to preserve as much of it as possible. I mean, th th that building surely was made with old growth lumber, the kind of which you can't get today. Right. Uh, and that, that if you use in the right way, you can make last a long can I, time. Can I jump in here? I, I am the biggest fan of old houses. My house is 105 years old and I love the idea of saving everything, especially because Euclid Avenue has like no mansions left, right? It used to be like lined with them and now there's like, you know, the history, the children's museum is one of the only ones left. But if you have driven past this thing and seen the Coliseum sign, you were like, okay, it's, you know, it is time for this thing to come down. And you're right. Like there's been so much new construction, the idea of giving people like some nice places to live in Midtown and, and maybe they'll be able to walk around that area because there's so much development, I think is really uplifting. I, I mean, I'm never, usually never for tearing down, but in this way I'm like, okay, good riddance. That is an eyesore. I wonder if we could get a photographer in there just to take a lot of pictures. Oh, that of would what be so cool. That would be really cool. That's what I would have loved to see with this story. I think uh, that would be awesome to have a Instead gallery. Instead of just the sign of, out front, like that says the Coliseum, right. you're like, oh yeah, never want to have an event there. Right. I wonder if it's safe enough to do that or if you step on the stairs and you're yeah, through. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably going to be more depressing than charming. Oh, I don't think you're going to find charm. But, you know, the, <laughs> this is a massive old house. You're, you're not ever going to see one like that again. Right. That's true.
Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. We've talked about an unnecessary tax cut. We've talked about changes in school funding. What are some of the other controversial elements of the budget proposed by the Ohio Senate, as detected by our reporter, Laura Hancock? Jane Cahoon, it seems like things just keep bubbling up in this budget proposal that make you question it. I'm sure we'll find more, too. We always do. But Laura had a story laying out a few of the other things in this budget that have people concerned, including changes the Senate wants to make to to Medicaid and child care. I think one of the most interesting things is the child care issue. They want to eliminate the requirement that daycare centers participate in this step up to quality system in order to be eligible to accept children who qualify for federal subsidies. The Senate president, Matt Huffman, who's a Republican from Lima, said last week that this rating system is expensive and it's difficult to comply with. And he said it's decreased the number of child care centers available in, in his district. But under this rating system, the centers receive up to five stars based on standards like having certain training and professional development of their employees. And child development advocates say, you know, what they're doing is they're setting up like a two-tiered childcare system for the haves and the have-nots where low-income children won't have this assurance that they're getting the high-quality care that gives them a fair shot at being successful later in life. They say that public investment in childcare yields all kinds of benefits and cost savings for children, families, and taxpayers. And you shouldn't pit access and quality against each other. You've got to invest in both of those things. You know, we did a lot of content on this in our 2000 Days project. We spent a year, it was sponsored by by, uh, PNC Bank, on the, the importance of those first five years of a child's life. And one of the biggest parts about that was quality daycare. When Armin Budish became county executive, one of the first things he did was put $5 million up to be matched to get more quality daycare seats as measured by this system. This system increased the number of quality daycare seats in Cuyahoga County so more kids were doing better. So for Matt Huffman to say, well, it's expensive. Well, it's children. Aren't they mm-hmm. worth the expense? <laughs> right. This, this one throws me completely. It's like, okay, you know, who, who's, who's paying money now to the legislature to get them to do something stupid? We, you know, yeah. last year I mean, it was First they're, Energy. They're What's boasting, going on? They're boasting about how they've, this budget, I believe, also would make more people eligible for this, for the, for the childcare subsidies, but yeah, you but know, for bad child care yeah. subsidies, it's like, yeah, we'll get more kids into bad schools, doom their future. This, this, is this one Johnson. makes no sense whatsoever. I really would like to understand who drove this, who, who was the driver saying, Hey, we got to stop holding daycare centers accountable. Laura but- Johnson. I was just going to say, this is already in place and it's working. Like, it's one thing if you want to say, hey, let's spend a whole lot of money and make these child care centers accountable. But this is here and it's working. So the idea of backing off makes no sense. And, you know, I, we moved while my kids were still in that age. And we have been to four different child care centers. We're on wait lists for most of them. And like, it is hard to find quality child care. And it's really hard to even measure it. So this system was really important to us when we were looking. And it, it had 
something that's, you know, an apples to apples comparison. You take this away. I think that's doing a detriment to a huge number of families. Yeah, it's a great system. All right. Well, there, there was another element we wanted to talk about, Jane. What yeah, was it? there are a couple other things. One is some changes to Medicaid. And it's a little complicated, but basically they want to halt the process under which the Ohio Department of Medicaid has already reviewed applications and chosen six managed care organizations to oversee health care for the three million Ohioans who are in this federal state program. But the Senate budget added this new procurement process that would require the state to consider things like whether these managed care organizations are headquartered in Ohio, the number of jobs they create or they would lose uh, by the awarding of a contract. And, you know, apparently a couple of Ohio-based organizations were shut out of this process. So I think that's what's behind this. They they don't want to lose Ohio jobs. And so this could get them back into the game. But, you know, the Medicaid officials say they've been working on these contracts for like two years with the goals of improving health outcomes and providing flexibility. And they said, you know, it's just going to be unfortunate to lose that momentum. And then the last thing that uh, Laura reported on was that they're cutting some of the money going to what they call crisis pregnancy resource centers, which promote childbirth, parenting, and alternatives to abortion for pregnant women. The right to life people say, you know, this is bad. We need more money for this. And they they say it's going to help fight infant mortality. But abortion rights activists say that, you know, these places aren't licensed. They don't require physicians to give medical advice. And they say they mislead women. But but why would the Republicans take money away from this. This this doesn't make sense to me. This is because they want to do tax cuts, I guess, right? They, they, I it's know. just to save money. So they'll give yeah. up their principles on abortion if they can save some money. Okay. Well there you go. Good <laughs> stuff by Laura Hancock. I wonder what else she'll find. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Good conversations on Rob Portman Day. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. Come back tomorrow for another discussion of the big news. 